chapter 7 through 11, Paul is very much pastoral. He is providing in those chapters answers to practical questions that the believers in Corinth had and had written to him and sent a letter to him, probably delivered by Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Archaicus, and, uh, or Archaicus, not Archaicus. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 16, 17. So the Corinthians, as a young church, had a bunch of practical questions and sent a letter to Paul. And in chapters 7 through 11, he goes right down the line and answers them. That's the way that we should look at 7 through 11. And the first of these questions that they had for him had to do with marriage. And they were confused about marriage as a, as a new church, you know, and they still had quite a bit of cult, the culture in them, and they were confused about marriage and what it should look like in these things. We know that just from reading and studying thus far that the Corinthians had some serious problems with, with their marriages, and uh, along with many other issues, much of their marital trouble, it, it was basically, uh, it reflected it was the morally corrupt culture they lived in that they had brought into the church with them, and that impacted their marriages and relationships. And um, in their particular culture, uh, things like fornication, that's, you know, sleeping together outside of wedlock, adultery, homosexuality, even pedophilia, polygamy, concubinage, that's like living with a bunch of women that aren't your wives, but you act like they're wives, but you're not officially married to them and then divorce, these things were not just prevalent in that culture, but acceptable. And so you can imagine that's the, the um, social climate they live in. And you know now they're, they're saved by the Lord by His grace and, and God has planted a church there. Well, these things don't necessarily leave on day two. You kind of tend to bring into, you know, as you, as you enter into the church by God's grace, you kind of tend to bring some of those things with you. And so these things were prevalent in the culture and sadly in the church. And uh, before laying out some guidelines for marriage, Paul addresses the subject of, of singleness and celibacy, but really primarily celibacy. He wants to deal with that subject. Uh, the Corinthians were very confused about who sex is for, who should be practicing, who should be engaging in 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 sexual uh, relations. Is it for believers? Is it for unbelievers? Is it maybe for both? Is it for singles? Is it for those in serious dating relationships? Is it for those who are engaged? Like, you know, you're in a serious relationship, but you've taken it up a notch and, you know, and, and now we're engaged, so it's okay. They were confused about that. Or was it for married couples only? And then what about celibacy? They were very confused about celibacy, which is, you know, not engaging in sexual relations. Is that for unmarried people? Is that for married people? Is that for super religious, super pious people, or maybe kind of pious people? Is it archaic, outdated, and inapplicable altogether? Uh, these are the kinds of thoughts and questions that were swirling around in this church. And the fact of the matter is, is that celibacy was totally frowned upon in Greco-Roman culture, just as it is in the U.S. Totally frowned upon then, totally frowned upon today. 
if it, back during Roman Empire days, if you weren't sexually active, um, you know, in the empire, people thought you were abnormal. People thought you were missing out. People thought that maybe you were incomplete as a human being. Like there's definitely, if you're not sexually active, Fred, there's, there's nobody in here named Fred, I hope. <laughs> right? It's, it's an illustration. If there's a Fred in here, I'm not talking to you, Fred. I'm talking to Fred and Wilma and Barney from the Flintstones. But, you know, if you're not sexually active, then, you know, you're, you're half a human. Because to be human is to be sexual. You know, you remember, maybe you remember, I don't know if you were with us or not, or maybe you were out sick that day or you're new to us, but remember the Corinthian motto and mindset, mindset, as food is meant for the stomach, sex is meant for the body. This was their mindset. Sex was as normal to the average everyday Joe as, as eating food. And we saw that in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, chapter 6, verse 13a. Now, before... Uh, giving some, some guidelines, as I said, before giving some guidelines on marriage, because that's really what this chapter 7 is about. Before getting into that, Paul sets the record straight on celibacy in the very first section of this chapter. Take your Bibles, if you will, please, and turn to 1 Corinthians. We will be focused on chapter 7, verses 1 to 7. Um, this is going to be a four-point sermon, and um, there's quite a bit of material here. So um, if it's a little bit longer sermon, um, don't hold your breath because you'll run out of air. And just be gracious and just pay attention. I think this subject is important enough even if the sermon is, is a little bit longer than normal. And you people have been groomed for long sermons, so this shouldn't be a problem. And I'll just try to keep moving through the text. And if I stick to the, what I've written, we're fine. If I don't, big trouble in Little China. That's a movie from the 80s, by the way. So I have entitled this message, The Truth About Celibacy. Well, let's uh, pick up where we left off last Sunday and look at our first point. The first thing that Paul talks about is that, number one, celibacy is good. Verse 1, it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And the way that I come up with these points, these statements, the, the sentence or the point that I make in, in, in the line is really a summation of what the next verse says or what these verses say. And in verse 1, Paul is literally saying celibacy is good. And I'll tell you what, this right here, just starting off, is about as countercultural as you can get. Remember, their culture says it's not good, you're, you're subhuman, something's wrong if you're not sexual. And Paul is saying, to the contrary, it's actually good. Celibacy is a good thing. Maybe that clears up a, a, a little confusion for us. And he says it much better than I ever could. He says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So there we know he's there wrote questions to him, and he's now responding to those things. It says, he says uh, this, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So there's the celibacy. Now, I want you to pay close attention to the wording, pay close attention to the quotation marks. Paul is not asking this question here. He's answering it. Uh, the Corinthians asked in, in a letter that they had sent to him, 
Um, they are asking, is it good? Is it good, Apostle? You're the one that planted the church. We want to know this, firstly. Is it good for a single Christian? And they say, man, is it good for a single Christian man? That's the meaning, to be um, abstinent, to abstain from sexual relations with a woman, to be celibate. Is that a good thing? And Paul responds in the affirmative, not by saying, yes, absolutely, but by repeating their question to them, but he puts it in the form of a statement rather than a question. They asked, is it good for him to not have sexual relations with a woman? Paul replied, it is good for him not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's how you should read that verse. So they ask the question, he repeats the question, but puts it in the form of a declaration or statement. It is good. So right off the bat, Paul is saying that celibacy is a good thing, especially for the single Christian, for the Christian who is not married or who has been widowed or what have you. It is good for that man or woman of God to be celibate. Now, what question comes to your mind? Why is it good? Now, that's the first question that comes to mind to me. If you're saying it's good, why is it good? Because I think that Saying it's good is one thing, but knowing why it's good for the single Christian is even better, right? It puts handles on this. It puts handles on it. And I'll tell you what. Now, we, we, could, we could go throughout the Bible and find, you know, good reasons for why celibacy is good for a Christian, for a single Christian. I mean, first of all, the opposite of celibacy is fornication. That's a, a sin even listed among the more grievous sins in Romans one twenty nine. So the opposite of celibacy is fornication. And we, I, we could just say right off the bat, well, that's a, that's a great reason or a good reason why celibacy is good for the single Christian. Because the opposite's going out and having sex, and that's sinful, and that's going to be subject to discipline or judgment. But Paul doesn't lead us anywhere other than back to the context. So... The question is, why is it good for single Christians to be celibate? The answer is found literally everywhere in the Bible, but mostly here, his intent, in the immediate context where Paul painstakingly described the importance of the believer's body. Right? Isn't that what we just got done talking about for a couple weeks? Okay? It is good for single Christians to be celibate because, these are things that we've learned, their bodies are meant for the Lord and vice versa. 1 Corinthians 6, 13b. It's good for you as a single Christian. Celibacy is good for you because your body isn't meant for fornication. It's meant for the Lord and the Lord for your body. Another one, their bodies, talk about single Christians, their bodies have an eternal purpose. Resurrection and glorification. 1 Corinthians 6, 14 your body's purpose isn't fornication or sexual pleasure or any of those other things in this, in this life, especially as a single, but the ultimate and grand purpose is resurrection and glorification. Again, their bodies are members of Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.15. Hello. So what we just learned. How about uh, single Christians, as well as all Christians, but single Christians in particular, they are joined to the Lord through faith and are one spirit with him. 1 Corinthians 6.17. That's a, a great reason why celibacy is good for the single Christian. They're joined to the Lord. If they go and, and, and lay with a woman and commit fornication, Christ is there. That's a good deterrent. I don't want to do that. 
How about sexual immorality, and that would be fornication and a whole list of things, but sexual immorality is uniquely destructive to our physical bodies. 1 Corinthians 6.18b, this is a point he made. Celibacy is good for us single Christians because sexual immorality, going outside of God's parameters, is, can be just quite destructive even to our own physiology, which is a very practical thing. And do we not see that today? The destructiveness of sexual immorality across our world, especially in our nation? People are being ravaged by the consequence of sexual immorality, diseases and all these things. Again, their bodies, the single Christian's body, all Christians, but the single Christian's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Uh, again, they have been bought at a price, soul, spirit, and body. They're, they're entirely owned by Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 20, verse A. Wow, that is a wonderful reason why celibacy is good. You're not your own. You don't own you if you're in Christ. And then lastly, the single Christian. Celibacy is good for the single Christian because their present purpose is to glorify God in their bodies. That's the purpose of these physical bodies. 1 Corinthians 6.20b and then Paul adds to that, especially, here's, here's how you can bring glory to God in your body as a single Christian, by fleeing from sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 6, 18a. So, according to the context, what's been said, the basis for what's being said now, those are all solid reasons from chapter 6 why celibacy is good for the single Christian. Now, should single Christians maybe search the scriptures to find more reasons? Sure, why not? I would never try to deter anyone from studying the word, but I think the reasons or reasoning in chapter 6 is more than sufficient. Do we really need to go search the scriptures after reading and studying an entire section on the importance of our bodies and our union with Christ? In the early church, the greatest deterrent from fornication and sexual, sexual sin in the church was the union that believers had with Christ. That was what kept them holy and pure and not going outside of God's design for sex. And it should be the same for us. It should... Father, help him. It should be the same for us. Amen? Amen. Do we really need to add rationale to the union that we have with Christ? I mean, the Bible gives us plenty of reason, but I think, in my humble opinion, that's more than sufficient. Just knowing that I have this union with Christ, that I'm one with Him, which is the whole point of the latter part of chapter 6, that should be good. That should keep us in a right state of mind. So, firstly, celibacy is good. And I've just given you a bunch of reasons from chapter 6. Okay, it's a good thing, and that's about as countercultural as you can get because the culture doesn't think it's good for one second. But God is above our culture. He's above our culture. Number two, celibacy can be fraught with temptation. Verse two. I'll just say celibacy is fraught with temptation. And I said, I, I originally said can be because I have met single Christians who don't seem to have as much temptation as others. So you could talk to some single Christian and say, man, do you really struggle with temptation? No, not really. Well, you probably have the gift of celibacy then because the one who doesn't and is trying to practice it, it's tough and it's fraught with temptation. 
But Paul puts it like this. He says, verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Ultimately, what he's saying is that celibates have to deal with sexual temptations and these sorts of things. And if that's you, then knowing that it's fraught with temptation, it'd probably be better for you to have a spouse. And this really is one of the pitfalls that comes with singleness and celibacy, right? Temptation. And the specific temptation that he mentions is sexual immorality. MacArthur wrote, because sexual desire is unfulfilled and can be very strong, there is great temptation to sexual immorality for those who are not married, especially in societies such as that of ancient Rome and our own, where sexual license is freely practiced and glorified. I don't know if there's going to be a better statement coming from somebody other than Scripture than that. That is right hitting the nail on the head. In this sexually charged culture, it's going to make it harder on someone who's pursuing celibacy. The temptations will be worse in the advertisement in everything, in everything. And so that is a perfect, perfect statement. Scripture gives numerous reasons for marriage. And I don't want you to sense from me that I think that marriage is superior. I think the Bible says that both are superior because both are God's design for certain people. So, you know, in, in churches, m most of the couples and people in the churches are married. And so the emphasis is always on marrieds and all that. And the single celibates get left behind and it's a shame. So I'm not pumping marriage here. Marriage is wonderful, but marriage is fraught with difficulty. Amen. Any marrieds in here that know what I'm talking about? Or are you just not willing to admit it because your spouse is next to you? <laughs> My marriage has been nothing but glorious. Later on, I get a text, it's been hard. <laughs> Don't tell Fred. And I'm texting Fred, she said it's been hard. <laughs> I wouldn't do that to you. So there are, are numerous, according to scripture, numerous reasons for marriage. And let's just cover some of these because it, it kind of builds into where we're going. Firstly, marriage is for procreation. Right, reproduction, so to speak. God commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, Genesis 1.28. God intends for mankind to reproduce itself. It's part of his design. So that's a solid or decent reason for marriage. Secondly, marriage is for pleasure. It really is. Proverbs 5.18-19 says that a husband should rejoice in the wife of his youth and be filled with delight because of her body. That's my paraphrase because I didn't want to say what that actually says because there's no kids in here. I probably could have done it, but still. And he should always be intoxicated with her love. That's an interesting way to go. Like, I'm drunk on your love, baby. That's just weird. Put that in a Valentine's card. Put that in a Galentine's card. <laughs> I don't know, what, what, Galantine, what is this? <laughs> Drunk on her love, that's an interesting, that's interesting terminology, but if you know anything about the Song of Songs and Proverbs, hello, pretty explicit. Song of, uh, Song of Solomon does center on the physical attractions and physical pleasures of marital love, okay? So we, we don't want to deny the fact that marriage, part of the purpose is pleasure, pleasure for the couple. That is not sinful. That is not wrong. It, it's holy. It's good. It's a gift. Third, marriage is a partnership. 
Woman was created for man to be a helper suitable for him, Genesis 2.18. Friendship between a husband and wife is one of the key ingredients to a good marriage. I think if any of us have a decent marriage, it's because we're friends with our spouse. We have great companionship with our spouse. We get along really well. That helps. Fourth, marriage is a picture of the church. Husbands are to have headship over their wives and as Christ has headship over the church and, and they're to love their wives as Christ loves his church, Ephesians 5, 23 to 32. So a good godly marriage kind of reveals the church to the world. Our good relationship as husbands and wives reveals in a picture way, in an illustrative way, the marriage relationship between Christ, our husband, and his bride, the church. So there's a beauty in that. Bad marriages, uh, whew, they don't do that very well, do they? They make the church and everything else not look good. Let's get some help if that's what we need. And then finally, fifth, marriage is, this is Paul's point, marriage is for purity. This is what Paul is talking about in chapter 7 here. It is for purity. It protects from sexual immorality by meeting the need for physical fulfillment. That is exactly what he's talking about in verse 2. How many of us have ever stopped to think of marriage as being a protective union where we can um, interact with one another sexually and meet those sexual needs, thus guarding us from those temptations, right? So, And, and that's exactly one of the good purposes of marriage. Marriage, it's what Paul's pointing to. Celibacy is good for single Christians because it keeps them sexually pure, right? It's the abstain, you're abstaining from sexual activity. So it, it keeps them pure. It keeps the temple clean. It keeps the dwelling place of the Lord pure and holy. It keeps their temple holy. But it does come with temptation, Temptation to gratify the desires of the flesh through sexual immorality. If a, and I'll tell you what heightens it. If a, if a single Christian has not always been faithful throughout the duration of their singleness, uh, these temptations are going to be much more powerful. What I'm saying is, is that if you're a single celibate Christian, but you, you've given, you're single and celibate now, you're single now, but celibate now, but haven't always been celibate or have given yourself over to other things, that's going to pump up your temptation big time. Much more so if you weren't engaging in anything. Okay, so uh, an illustration, if a bear tastes human blood, it's going to crave it. If a single Christian tastes, and I would call them the forbidden fruits of sexual pleasure, they are going to crave them. They will. They can even recall from memory past sexual experiences, become filled with lust, and maybe seek out ways to carry out those fantasies and desires. As a rule of thumb, it's not always true of everyone because some have the gift of celibacy. We'll talk about it. But as a rule of thumb and thinking psychologically, Sex leads to more sexual desire. It just does. Like the bear craves after the blood. It just does. It is not the other way around. Now, I understand the dynamics of being human. You could be a woman. Maybe you're getting a little older and the desire wanes. I understand that or whatever it is. Maybe you're a gal or a guy and you've just never really been sexual and like, it's okay, my wife and I do these things, but you know, it's not something I'm always gunning for. If you're a guy, I find that to be impossible. But 
if you engage in sexual pleasure, you're going to want more of it. You will. Most of the time, especially if you are a guy. Now, this is a horrible illustration, but I'll use it anyways. When I was in my late teens, early 20s, I call those the stupid years. Because let me tell you, one stupid decision after another. But when I was very young, I wasn't raised in the church, didn't know the Lord. And the way it worked for me was if I had a beer when I was in my late teens, early 20s, I wanted two beers. And if I had two beers, I wanted three beers. And then after that, four, five, six, seven, eight passed out. It can be the same with everything in anything that gives us pleasure or makes us feel good. Whether it be alcohol, whether it be shopping. Believe it or not, that's a thing today. Like shopping gives you like a little, a little bump, right? You know, like, ooh, I, I feel good. I, Amazon's coming. And when you see him pull up, you're like, praise, the, there's a God. He loves me. Look at these packages. They're Danielle Steele novels. Stay away from that singles, <laughs> right? But shopping can give you this little boost. Food. The older I get, the more I want to eat and the, the more I'm into food. And, and now I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm using my palate to check the profile of what I just put in my mouth. The enchilada has a profile of a, I mean, when you're young, you just gobble stuff up. But when you get older, you, you, like, you really want to like taste things, right? Right? So, so food brings pleasure. Exercise, believe it or not, pretty good for you, but... One of the number one uh, representations of narcissism in our culture now. I mean, people are just like, look at my body. And I'm just like, I don't want to see it. Sex. Sex is one of these things that brings pleasure. It can make you feel good. And it's something like me in my stupid years make you want more and more of it. So, so if you're a celibate single Christian, but you haven't always been celibate, or you've even been engaging in other forms of sexual immorality, maybe you're not lying with a gal, but you're doing other things, it is going to bump up that temptation like crazy. But if you're a single Christian, you're still a virgin, and you have abstained from other types of sexual immorality, you're protecting your eyes and not looking at stuff on the internet, you're not doing other things, sexual temptation will still appear but it's not going to be as strong because that person has no sexual experiences. This is stuff that you would learn in a psychology class. It's not bad. It's not unbiblical. Lusts that are fueled by past sexual experiences are very, very powerful. Like I said, you can call to memory things. Right? I'm thinking of Job as a married man made a covenant with his eyes not to look at the young pretty virgins in his community because it would be easy for him to look at these beautiful young women and to imagine what it would be like to be with them based on the fact that he'd been with his wife for years. He had a context for sex and he could layer that onto other things and this is what can happen. So lusts that are past, uh, fueled by past sexual experiences are very, very powerful. But lusts that arise from our fleshly imaginations that have no point of reference, they're not as strong. They're strong, but they're not as strong. They're not as strong. I like what David Garland wrote at this point. He takes this whole subject in uh, an interesting direction that I think is good for us. He says this, the danger Paul wants to preempt is immorality. 
That's what Paul's trying to avoid by pump and celibacy and these things. Or, you know, hey, if you're single and you're celibate and you, you can't withstand the temptation, then get married. So that's what he's saying. The danger Paul wants to preempt is immorality. And he is fully aware that, listen, that simply urging people to get married will not solve the problem of sexual sins. Married persons can violate their marriage. The state of marriage alone is not enough to guard against outbreaks of immorality. So he's not disagreeing with what Paul is saying. He's just simply saying to us, be careful, because marriage is a great alternative. It can be a protective place, but it doesn't stop people from sinning sexually at times. There's such a thing as adultery going outside of the marriage. So, so clearly, that marriage didn't put it into that sexual sin because someone decided to go outside of it. So this is what Garland is, Garland is pointing to. He is, he is pointing to how believers can make the mistake of thinking that marriage will somehow fix their sexual problems and struggles. Right Now, Paul, Paul is suggesting that in a way, but not at the level that some of us might be led to think. And I'll just say this. This is not Garland speaking. The quote's over with, but we should not look at marriage. It should not be viewed as a repair shop for our vices. It shouldn't be. Some people are ignorant enough to think that, well, the day I get married is the day that all that stuff will end. No, you actually take it into your marriage with you. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Seriously, you don't just stop being a sexual sinner because you have an outlet for sex. You might have to deal with things still. You might bring that in and start putting that stuff on your wife or your husband. So it, it, just, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to fix those things. All marriage does in a way, is just provide a proper context for sexual expression that can help to tame those urges, but it doesn't cure sexual proclivities and addictions. It, it might not. It might, but it might not. In addition to this, there are believers who rush right into marriage because of fornication. Right? You know, a guy meets a gal and you know, they, they hang out for a little while. They're not together very long, and they don't keep the boundaries in place. And the next thing you know, he's in bed with her, right, doing what they ought not do. And it isn't long before he really starts to think about what he's done, and he feels bad about it because he knows fornication is sinful. He knows it's wrong. And he starts to entertain the idea of marriage because he thinks now in his ignorance that marriage is probably the best way to fix that. Plus, he'd really like to keep sleeping with her because, honestly, it feels good. It's pleasurable. And so then what does he do? He proposes after just a few months or maybe a year or, I, heaven forbid, it could be a few weeks. This has happened. And I'm not, I am not sharing with you anything that I've had to deal with one-on-one -on -one with anyone. I'm telling you, these things happen. Okay, this is not like, oh, he's outing somebody in the church. Yes, I am. I'm outing Fred and Wilma. <laughs> Okay, those stinking Flintstones, always sinning against the Lord. So, so he slept with her and he feels bad about it and, and you know, he wants to kind of fix it and he thinks marriage is the way to go and so he proposes and she actually, really not all that surprisingly, says yes because she feels the exact same way. We're Christians, we're supposed to be committed to the Lord and we've been sleeping together and we need to fix this and the way to fix that is through marriage. Plus it'd be nice to keep doing it. And then after the wedding, just maybe a few months down the road, both are absolutely miserable because of compatibility issues. Miserable. 
Rushing into marriage because of sexual immorality is one of the most unwise things a single Christian could ever do. And this is really what Garland's talking about in a way that, you know, sex doesn't fix us in those ways. Why is this so unwise? Well, firstly, it's because these two people that are now married hardly knew each other and hardly know each other. One of the great tests of a relationship, even prior to marriage, is adversity. If you haven't been with somebody long enough to experience some adversity, to see how each other's going to respond to it, I don't think you're going to do very well with adversity after you've gotten married. I'm sorry. Something hits your marriage and you don't know what to do with it because you don't have those experiences because you dated for 24 hours. <laughs> you were in Vegas. It was ugly. What stays in Vegas should stay there, but no, we bring it into the church. Seriously, it's comical, but this is a real problem with Christians. Christians today, single Christians are so hot and heavy to get into marriage, and I think it's because they're really hot and heavy to get into bed. Why? Because they have been enculturated. This culture is telling them there's something wrong with you if you're not sexual, you're abnormal, you're subhuman, and Christians are listening to that message more than they're listening to this message. In fact, the message I'm preaching now isn't even preached in churches, so they're ill-equipped. And they're enculturated. It's tragic. You don't know anything about this person. Now you're in a marriage with them. Now you're finding, right, you know, after a few months and all these other problems are developing, guess what? The sex isn't all that great anymore. Because one of the things that impacts the quality of sexual expression in a marriage is how two people respect each other and love each other and the companionship they have. I hope I'm not making this awkward on anyone. Are you okay with it? Because I see Shannon's face is bright red. <laughs> she don't like this stuff. She does. You want to hear it, don't you? <laughs> for now. You're married. You should be fine. And Lauren, I don't know what your problem is. You're married too. Philip, are you watching this? So you don't know anything and, and now you're, you're, you're learning things after you've tied the knot and, and you're realizing that you don't even have the same theology. You don't have the same convictions. You, you don't have the same mission mindset. You don't have the same worldview. You clearly don't have the same zeal for the Lord or desire for holiness. Now the wife is starting to say, I'm not even sure if he's actually a believer. He said he was. I wasn't with him long enough to really test that. And now I'm kind of convinced he's not at all because he doesn't want to go to church, doesn't want to read his Bible, doesn't lead me spiritually. And this is for the rest of their life. You dug the hole, you're laying in it. That sounds like a real blessing to me, right? Just, let's just rush it because we, we fornicate. Let's just rush into this. And now, now it's like it's become a, a life sentence without the possibility of parole. That's what bad marriage is like. It's, a, it's hard. And that doesn't mean that God can't redeem and fix a marriage. He can't. If, if you've been married in this room, you've probably had the grace of God come in and help you out a little bit in your marriage. Because if it didn't, you'd, you'd you know, I don't know. <laughs> let, me, let me tell you what the safest option is for a single Christian who has gone outside of the parameters 
okay? I've just illustrated how marriage is not the safe option. You want me to tell you what the safe option is for the Christians who have made these mistakes? Repentance! It's that simple. Stop being sexual with the person, confess the sins to the Lord, right? And discuss how you can keep your relationship pure. And if you don't think you can keep it pure, because once you've, once you've brought impurity, sexual impurity into it, it's very hard to abstain with a person who was willing before. If you can't keep it pure, get out of it altogether. Leave, break up, split up. That is better than a lifelong sentence without the possibility of parole in a marriage that is disastrous and hard that God will work through to sanctify you. It could turn out good, but marriage doesn't fix fornication. It provides a proper outlet for sexual expression. That's it, but it doesn't, it can't, man, just be careful with who you marry and don't rush into it. Repentance is the better option. But I feel like in the church today, it's all about, that's such a terrible sin, you ought to marry each other. No! No, that's a stupid thing to say. Unless you've been together for five years and you've been through adversity and all that, don't just rush into marriage. And don't rush into bed. Make sense? Okay. I'm starting to get shouty because, whew, repentance is better. You know, Jesus said that we ought to remove things from our lives that make us lust and sin, right? Matthew 5, 27 to 30, if your eye causes you to sin. He's talking about, he's not saying really gouge out your eye, but if your boyfriend causes you to sin, tell him to hit the road. Bye, Fred. Seriously, you, we are supposed to be in the habit and business of removing. This is what it means to live as a sacrifice. This is what it means to follow Jesus. It is daily sacrificial living, getting rid of the things, politely, mind you, of the things that are encumbrances. If it's people, then maybe we need to, I need to get that girlfriend, I, I, I need to break it off because it's, this is what happens. This is, that's what it means to live as a sacrifice. Jesus, man, he was serious about that. So celibacy could be fraught with temptation. And if we don't handle temptation well, then we should pray and keep our eyes open for a godly spouse. But remember that marriage is not the message or the mission of the church. Not even close, right? Therefore, we should not depend on the church to meet this need, nor should we choose a church based on its singles crop. I have met people who have done this, and I'm just like, you are not good for RHC. Well, I went to one of your services. It's not good for me because there's not a lot of single gals there or guys. And it's like, you are not looking at any of this properly. You have a wrong mindset. Go over to a mega church where they have mega singles. I mean, come on. The, the church isn't here. It doesn't exist to make sure that I find a good spouse. You want to find a, a potential spouse in the church, but that's not the message or mission of the church. We shouldn't choose one based on how many singles it has. I mean, there are, there are churches, even in our community, that just have a ton. I would imagine, I don't know this for sure, because if I, if I say that I researched it, it really sounds weird, because I'm married. So I, I, I didn't do research, honey, right? But I'm sure, and I was part of a big church for years, and... There's big churches around here that have a lot of 
nice single people, attractive men and women, right? And also have terrible theology. Just disastrous theology. Now, I'm not talking about Big Valley. It's pretty solid. But I'm just saying, you can have a church that has, oh, man, they've just got the most beautiful young women. You know, that's why I go there. And the theology is like, you know what? If you put a dollar in the basket, you'll get 16 back next week. How do I do that? You just take it out of the basket. I mean, they're just fraught with horrific theology, but a lot of really nice, attractive, young, single people. Bruce is like, what's happening? The look on his face. What is going on in here? Churches with a lot of attractive singles, but disastrous theology. I say this to you, anyone who's even watching, do not make theological or and or uh, ecclesiological, that's church-focused compromises to get a girl or a guy. Do not do it. It's not wise. You may end up with a compromised spouse who primarily wants to debate and convert you to her or his ridiculously crooked system. I tell you what, if I were single, right, like, you know, if I was a young lad or whatever and, and I was past the stupid years, if I was young, if I was single or whatever, not saying this against my wife, because let me tell you, I'd prefer to be married and to her and her alone. I love you, baby. But if I were single, I would look for a 10-point Calvinist gal. That way, if she jettisons five points, there's still five to go. What am I saying to you? It's funny, but what I'm saying is, is that I would want a gal who's theologically sound more so than hot. I hate that word, hot. Ugh. All right. Moving on, number three, right? So it's fraught with temptation. It's good, it's good, but it is fraught with temptation. Three, celibacy is not for married couples. It's not. We see this in verses three to five. We'll start in three. He says this, the husband, now he's talking about marriage, the husband should give his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. All right? That celibacy is wrong for those who are married should be an obvious truth, but it was not all that obvious to some of the Corinthian believers. <laughs> That's kind of weird. Because of their erroneous belief in the spiritual superiority of total sexual abstinence, some members in the church practice it even while being married. There were overly zealous husbands that had apparently decided to, you know, kind of set themselves apart totally for God. And in doing so, they neglected their spouses, their wives, right? They neglected their, their responsibility to their wives, especially in the area of sexual relations. And wives were doing the exact same thing. So, so the climate, the sexual and marital climate in Corinth was... Look, sex isn't necessarily a bad thing for us marrieds, but if we want to reach a new level of spirituality, I think it's something that I need to abstain from. And then, you know, don't bother to tell your wife. And then she has to discover it when she wants to be with you and you're like, I am holy. This is what they were doing and vice versa. This is a recipe for disaster. This is what they were doing. Paul commands these Piety pursuing zealots to, to give to their spouses their conjugal rights. A conjugal right is the right to sexual relations. I, we always associate it with prison, but it's not a prison term. It's just a term that means sexual relations. You have the right to that. That's what conjugal means. And this right 
is established through marriage. The two shall become one flesh. Genesis 2.24, Matthew 19.5, Mark 10.8, Ephesians 5.31 all talk about this. When a married or when a couple marries, they are literally, and it's usually not mentioned in the vows, but they are covenanting and making a vow to share their bodies with each other. That's the oneness. Marriage doesn't bring oneness. Consummation does. Conjugal right does. You don't become one until you go to bed. And when you get married, you are saying to your spouse, this is yours. What do you think? Don't ask that because she might give you the truth. <laughs> but that's what you're doing. This is yours and what you have is mine and, you know, we're going we're gonna to trade. Woo! That's the covenant that you're making. The husband is saying, my body is yours. And likewise, the wife is saying, yeah, mine's yours. But in Corinth, these believers were saying to their spouses, my body was yours, but it's not anymore because I am setting it apart for the Lord entirely. In marriage, they're doing this. Now, this was especially true within this spiritually mixed marriages between believers and unbelievers. Believing husbands were denying their unbelieving wives their conjugal rights. Well, you know, I know we did this at first, but we, we really can't sleep together anymore because we're unequally yoked. It's amazing how that didn't cross his mind on wedding day three years earlier. This is the stuff they were coming up with. It was fine for him to marry an unbeliever three years earlier, and now he's got this new conviction straight out of the pit of hell that says, I cannot be with you sexually anymore. And some of the believing wives were doing this exact same thing with their unbelieving husbands. And the motive for this was just, a, just pure ignorance and a misplaced piety. You know, if you're in marriage, abstaining from sexual relation does not make you more pious or holy. <laughs> kind of makes you the opposite. They thought that God was being dishonored through sexual relations because of spiritual incompatibility between believers and unbelievers. But like I said, it's amazing how this unequally yoked conviction, we see that in 2 Corinthians 6.14, it just wasn't present on wedding day or even prior to when they started saying these things to each other during the courtship. or It just wasn't there. They didn't have this conviction. And what Paul is saying here is, that, uh, uh, you know, hey, Corinthians, it's too late for that. You're married. God expects you to honor him um, by honoring each other with your conjugal rights, by coming together regularly. That, that honors the Lord and it honors each other when you do that and you covenanted to give the body your body over and when you come together and do that, that's honoring to God. That's honoring to each other and you're married and it's too late for this false piety or whatever it is that you're trying to come up with where you're not being together. Paul is saying, practice these things in your marriage like you did before. Give yourselves to each other. He is saying celibacy in marriage isn't pious, it's impious. It's the opposite. MacArthur again, God holds all marriage to be sacred and he holds sexual relations to be uh, between husband and wife, not only to be sacred, but proper and obligatory. That means necessary or commanded in a sense. Married believers are not to sexually deprive their spouses, whether or not their spouse is a Christian. Another great point. 
You know, if you married a Christian, you should be having sexual relations. If you are a Christian and married an unbeliever, you should be having sexual relations. If you were both unbelievers, then both got saved later on, you should be, I mean, if you're in marriage, you should be having the conjugal rights. You should be practicing those things is what he's saying. The husband or wife who says, I will not have sexual relations with my spouse because they do not trust in Christ, they do not honor the Lord, they do not go to church with me, etc., etc., is actually doing what I call weaponizing sex. They are turning sex into a weapon against their spouse. They are using sex as a weapon. Are we foolish enough to believe that sexual deprivation will somehow win our spouses over? <laughs> I know this will bring him to the Lord. No, we're not doing that. This is, this is mental. Faith, we know faith comes by the hearing of the word, right? Romans 10, 17, we understand that, we get it. Nobody's converted without hearing the gospel and the spirit there in power. We understand this, I'm not bucking against that at all. We all understand that. But are we aware of the sanctification that comes through good godly living in our marriages? Are we aware of that? That believing husbands and wives sanctify their unbelieving spouses through godly living? That when they set a Christ-like example for their unbelieving spouses, it's actually sanctifying? Paul talks about this down in verse 17. But if they weaponize sex and deprive their unbelieving spouse of his or her God-given conjugal rights, how does that set a godly example? How will that sanctify that unbelieving spouse and maybe lead them, in a sense, toward Christ? How will they know that God is love when you as a spouse who are now making and forcing the celibacy, how are they going to know that, that God is love? How are they going to know that God is actually love while you, as his representative and ambassador, are being so unloving? Because to weaponize sex against a spouse is unloving. You see, now you're frustrating the sanctifying that God wants to do between you as a believer and the unbelieving spouse. That's what he's talking about. Verse 4. Listen to this. He's just building. For the wife does not have authority over her own body. Whoa! But the husband does. Whoa! Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but she does, or the wife does. Wow! Spouses, what he's saying, spouses have mutual authority over each other's bodies. The present tense of the Greek verb behind uh, the phrase have authority over indicates that this is a mutual authority or that this mutual authority is perpetual. It is continuous. It lasts throughout the duration of the marriage unto death. In the normal realms of life, a Christian's body is his own to take care of and use as a gift from God. And in the deepest spiritual sense, it belongs entirely to God, right? Romans 12, 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20, we learn that. But in the marital realm, that body of his or hers belongs to the spouse. In marriage, husbands and wives surrender their their bodily authority, like the authority that I have over this body in marriage, I surrendered the, the authority that I bore or bear over this body, I surrender it to her, and she does likewise to me. 
That's what Paul is teaching here. This is extraordinary. You talk about bucking against the culture again. You are you. Now, if you're in marriage, you are not you. You are her. She is you. And I don't mean that in a weird gender confused way. Because that's exactly what our culture is doing now. Now, understand. You know, the husband exercises authority over his wife's body and vice versa. He has the right to utilize her body for sexual relations, and the same is true of her. That's what it means to have this authority. But this does not mean that they can do whatever they want to their spouse's bodies. Anything goes. It does not mean that at all. It does not mean that you can carry out sordid sexual fantasies, make your spouse uncomfortable. Those things shouldn't be there to begin with. But that is not what Paul is saying. Well, you have full license due to her as you would want to do or vice versa. That is not what he's saying. Bodily authority is a gift from God, but it does not grant bodily abuse. These bodies are temples. We must be mindful of how we use them, especially in the bedroom. John Mayer saying, your body is a wonderland, right? You remember that? Although the body is quite wondrous, that is not a Christian motto. You like his music? Great. Reject that one. A mature Christian spouse aims for what is mutually acceptable and mutually pleasing. Firstly, mutually acceptable. Are there... Forms, maybe we asked and answer this question, other forms of sexual expression between married couple that can dishonor God? Absolutely. But the Bible focuses primarily on those kinds of sexual expressions that occur outside of marriage, not inside of marriage. Right? It, the focus isn't on what people are doing inside their marriages in Scripture. It's mostly on the outside, the fornication, the adultery, the homosexuality, those things. So I would simply say that whatever is done sexually should be fully agreed on between the husband and the wife. Neither husband nor wife should be coerced into doing something he or she is not absolutely comfortable with. Coercion is both disrespectful and disgrading. It is totally degrading, sorry. It's disrespectful and degrading. If, if we use coercion... We are disrespecting and degrading our spouse. Now, God totally, and this is where it can become something that's dishonoring to God. Sexuality can't. God is totally, he totally opposes any sort of mistreatment of others. Any bit of it at all. Even from the believer to the unbeliever, in any way, shape, or form that you can imagine, he is opposed to, to when we mistreat others, no matter what. The second table of the law, right, commandments 6 through 10 are entirely focused on the proper treatment of others. God has made it so clear in his Ten Commandments, more of them be devoted to how we treat each other than how we should treat him. Right there in the Ten Commandments in, in 6 through 10, Exodus 20, 12 to 17, he has made it clear that he has no tolerance for the mistreatment of others. So that means there are forms of sexual expression in marriage that dishonor the Lord, and it would be anything that disrespects and degrades our spouse. Now you've crossed a line if you're using coercion to try to do things with your spouse that your spouse is not comfortable with. If you mistreat her or mistreat him, that is sexual expression that dishonors the Lord because you are hurting 
not just hurting your spouse, but you're hurting the Lord who redeemed and bought her. Very, very serious and very necessary to talk about that for a second since younger people today are getting all of their sexual education from pornography. Horrible. They watch pornography, this is what we should be doing. And then they foist that on their spouse. That's horrible. And that's what we're talking about here. All right, moving on. This is good here. Verse 5a, this is where it really, are you ready? Turbo, here we go. Verse 5a, and this is probably one of the most misinterpreted, misunderstood verses in the whole Bible. Do not deprive one another. Stop there. Do not deprive one another. That is a command, by the way. It's explicit. It's got to be one of the most misunderstood verses, or at least half verses. Why is that? Because it's almost never looked at in its context. Right? What is the second rule of biblical hermeneutics? The meaning of a word, phrase, sentence, or paragraph must be derived from the context. What is hermeneutics? It's how to interpret the Bible. So the, the second rule, the first rule is actually scripture interprets scripture. The second rule is the context determines the meaning of any verse or word. So Paul's admonition back in verse 3 tells us that sexual deprivation in this church, it was unjustified. It was wrong, right? It was done out of ignorance. Otherwise, he would not have commanded them to re-engage their spouses sexually. Give her her conjugal rights. Give him his conjugal rights. If they possessed a justifiable reason for celibacy within the context of marriage, Paul would not have commanded them to exercise those conjugal rights. So, there was no justification for marital or marital celibacy here. Husbands and wives were deliberately and cruelly refusing to give their spouses their conjugal rights for the sake of false piety or some other ignorant reason. What am I saying? That's the context. That shapes the meaning of 5A. It gives 5A its meaning, the context. Wrong kind of celibacy. That's the context. If you don't understand this, you're going to go crazy with this verse. No justification for this whatsoever. Now, what is the sixth rule of biblical hermeneutics? Number six, when interpreting the scriptures, investigate the meanings of keywords in their original languages. Mm. You mean English isn't the original language? No. It wasn't even a language then, as far as I know. Maybe it was, but it was ye, thou, and all that. Okay, so, sixth rule, original language. Here we go. And I always screw up the pronunciation, because it's really hard. The Greek word for deprive is apostoreo. Apostoreo. Guess what it means? To steal theft. That's the meaning of the word there, of deprive, to steal, to rob, in a sense, not at gunpoint, but to rob is what it means, to steal. This is astounding. In verse 5a, here's what Paul is saying in light of the context. He is commanding the Corinthians to stop stealing sexual relations from one another. That's exactly what he's saying. Now follow his logic so far. Husbands and wives possess God-given conjugal rights and God-given authority over each other's bodies, right? We just learned that in verses 3 and 4. 
If one deprives the other of sexual relations, they are taking this conjugal right away. They are removing access to a body that the spouse has authority over. That, my friends, is theft. That is theft. They are stealing from their spouse. That's the meaning. Even more shocking, because I don't know if we've ever looked at it like that, right? We've ever looked at it as theft, and that's exactly what he's saying. But even more shocking than that, this husband, this wife, whomever, is denying the one who gave these good and gracious gifts for their enjoyment, for their protection, and for his glory. So they're not just stealing from their spouse. They are dishonoring the giver. Mm. This is heavy here. This is heavy. Stop stealing from your spouse. That's the meaning. Now we can look at 5b to 6. And he says this, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, um, now as a concession, not a command is what I'm saying here. That's what he says. This is a concession, not a command. So Paul, what he does firstly is he identifies one instance where celibacy would be appropriate within the context of marriage. And he says that you may devote yourselves to prayer. So he's been saying it's not appropriate. It's not right. It, you're stealing the conjugal right. You're stealing away the authority they have. But now he's saying there is an instance where it is lawful, where it is good for prayer. But I want you to notice the qualifiers here. First, it must be by agreement. <laughs> well, I tell you, I prayed and I agreed with the Lord on this one, honey. But you didn't have a conversation with her, did you? No, I didn't. Wrong! By agreement, which means the decision to introduce celibacy into the marriage, it cannot be made by one without the other. Mutual agreement. You sit down, you have a conversation. You know, I, I think that we should abstain from that for, for maybe a period of time so we can seek the Lord through prayer, maybe so we can fast, we can do these things. You know, they're spiritual disciplines. That's what he's saying. But it has to be agreed upon. You can't just, honey, by the way, right? Start using that instead of, I have a headache. <laughs> the couple must make the decision together and be fully united. If one says no to celibacy, I don't think that's a good idea at all because Paul also warns about the dangers of it here. If one says, I don't think it's a good idea, I, don't, I, don't, I think it's bad, I think we're going to open ourselves up to temptation, I don't want to do it, guess what? You don't say, well, we're, we're doing it because I'm the head of the house or whatever. No. Mutual agreement only has to be made together. And notice the second qualifier, which is equally important, it must be for a limited time. Protracted, lengthly celibacy is very dangerous because Paul says it opens us up to satanic temptation. He says it right there in the verse. The purpose of marriage in verse 2 is to provide men and women with a context for sexual expression, to, to bring an end to celibacy and, and to help tame the temptations that are associated with celibacy. That's the, the whole point in verse 2. Introducing celibacy into the marriage defeats one of the purposes of marriage, sexual expression. And as Paul says here, it opens the couple up or the husband or the wife, it opens them up to an increased satanic temptation. And he says, why? Because of your lack of self-control. 
You, you take sex out of the marriage, right? You know, we're, we're just going to be celibate for a while. You take it out of there and, and what have you, and maybe it's not, you know, it's not agreed upon or any of that or whatever, but if you just take it out of there, a spouse might be tempted by Satan. I think they will be tempted by Satan, but maybe even to do something dramatic and drastic, depending on the length of the celibacy, maybe to go outside of the marriage to find sexual expression because the spouse won't be with them because they're practicing celibacy. Or maybe they won't go that far and go to the adultery, but they'll just find other ways to express and to practice. That's usually what happens first with the pornography and those things. They will find other ways if it's protracted. It, they can, and that would be the attack of Satan. That's what he would want. He would want to fully disrupt and destroy that marriage because he hates anything that's trying to honor God. And that is exactly what Paul is concerned about here. He, he, is, he is saying, if you practice celibacy for prayer or some other spiritual discipline, keep it short and come together again because you are putting each other at risk. That's what he's saying. You're putting each other at risk. Now, Paul provides no other rationale for marital celibacy here at all, just prayer. It's the only thing he brings up. There are things that can cause involuntary celibacy in marriage. And this is very important, so I want you to pay very close attention. He's been talking about voluntary, like the couple is, you know, volunteering themselves to that, or one does it and sins against the other. That's all he's been talking about. And he doesn't really talk about involuntary, but I feel like it's necessary to talk about it. There is such a thing as involuntary celibacy in marriage, health issues, medical procedures and treatments, things outside of our control that ruin drive and ruin ability. This is a reality. It happens. And I will say this, when this happens, this is not the time for husbands and wives to passionately quote this text and start making demands of each other. It says, do not deprive. This is not the time for that if this happens in your marriage. I've actually seen this before, and it is despicable. One of the grossest, most nasty, ridiculous things you could ever see is a husband or wife getting upset at their spouse because the spouse really physiologically cannot do these things because of health issues, but they're mad at them or they're upset about it and they start quoting this verse and saying, you're supposed to provide for me in this way, honey. And, you know, and yeah, I, I, I know you have stage nine cancer, but this just makes me want to lose it. And I saw it, not stage nine cancer, there's no such thing. I was using hyperbole. Why would I use that kind of hyperbole? Because there's really no limit to how dastardly we can be. I've seen it. It's despicable. So, so, so when involuntary celibacy, celibacy against your control, it enters into the marriage because a partner cannot do things, because they have health issues or certain medications have kind of ruined them in that way. Maybe not permanently, but that's happened. This is not the time to point to this verse and say, do not deprive and make demands. I've seen it. It's horrendous. This is the time to practice the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, 
faithfulness, gentleness, and in all caps, self-control. Self-control. Galatians 5, 22 to 23. Involuntary celibacy comes in. It's time for the fruit of the Spirit, not demands. We made vows, thus married people here did. We made vows through sickness and through health for better or for worse, right? These are vows that we made. Maybe they didn't sound quite like that, but we did that when we got married. I, I remember doing it. And I'll tell you, for some husbands and wives, there is nothing worse than celibacy in their marriage. That's just like the worst thing in the world that can happen that my wife and I just aren't or can't be sexual anymore. That's just like the, that's like the highest of the... How about death? No, no, no. Sex, sex, sex. Can't handle it. It's just a horrible thing. And I think it's absolutely tragic because sex should never be that high on our list. Never. Americans act like they cannot live without sex. If we act like we can't live without it, we are being more American than Christian. Let me tell you right now. We know that celibacy in marriage can be and is often problematic. We understand that. The text says it, right? There's the temptations and things that arise and you're robbing and stealing. I get that. We understand that. We're not refuting that, Apostle Paul. We're not denying what the Word of God says. But I would say this to you today with all the compassion and love in my heart. Sometimes it just happens. The celibacy comes in and it's out of your control. He's not talking about that. He's talking about Voluntary, not involuntary. And I believe during these, these periods of time, could be a long time in your marriage, it could be. And, 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 and I have compassion for you. Understand that you, you want to, you know, you have a conjugal right and, and you want to you engage in those things. I understand the pleasure behind it and all. I get it, I get it, I get it, I get it. But I think that when that happens, and it does often, especially when you start getting older, I believe that is a time, obviously, for, from us, for the fruits of the Spirit, for understanding and compassion and self-control. We have self-control. You can control yourself, especially if you have the Holy Spirit. But I believe these are times when God manifests His joyful, all-satisfying presence in unique and special ways. Psalm 1611, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What, what I'm saying is, is that in those times, God is compassionate toward that married couple and shows up in unique ways, not to satisfy them in that fleshly way, but to satisfy them spiritually, which is so much higher than anything sexual or, or physical or temporal. He shows up. He shows up in his, in his presence in a unique way. He, he supplies extra grace when this celibacy is involuntary. And I believe he helps, he helps those who experience this involuntary celibacy. I believe he helps them realize, and listen to me, realize that companionship is a higher gift, is more satisfying lasts longer, 
in everything else. It is a superior gift that God gives a married couple. The companionship is higher than them all. It is. It is the superior gift from God. But the dangers remain. They're still there. The physically capable and desirous spouse will have a fight on their hands. They will. Satan will tempt them. And Satan will also tempt the spouse who lost his or her ability, hopefully just for a season, but believe me, it's not the end of the world. But he will tempt both. One, he will tempt them. You need to find a way to, to, to gratify those fleshly desires, and he will tempt the one who can no longer perform like they did before. He will tempt them. If it's a husband, Satan's going to tempt that guy who can't do those things any longer. He's going to tempt him to believe and think that he's not manly. You're not a man. This, 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 sex is it for you. That's what you're about. And you're not much of a man if you can't do that. This is a temptation. That thought will come through that man's mind. And he will sometimes even punish himself. Man, I just can't believe it. I can't even, I can't even do this with my wife anymore. And I can't even be with her like that anymore. Not just for me, but for her. And there's a, there's a closeness and I just can't do it. And I'm just not even a man anymore. The manliest man to ever walk the face of the earth never had sex. Jesus. Never forget that. So, sexuality doesn't define a man. Christ does. The believing man. And he will tempt. He'll tempt the man to think he's not a man. But he will also tempt the wife into thinking that her husband is going to lose interest in her. That is a very real temptation. If the wife can't do things because of health issues, then she's going to be worried about her husband going astray or maybe that she's lost her usefulness in the marriage. And I would simply apply the same truth. Jesus was the manliest man to ever walk the earth, but he didn't have any kind of sex. And the same rule applies to the gal. Her identity and all those things isn't tied into that. Her marriage, if, if your marriage, if our marriage is based entirely on sex, it's not going to work. It's going to end. I'll tell you what, if involuntary celibacy happens because of health issues, it's not the time to go to the verse and say, do not deprive. It's not the time for any of that nonsense. It is the time for the fruits of the Spirit. But I'll tell you what, it is a really good time for the couple to share their concerns and feelings with one another and to come together quite regularly for fervent intercessory prayer. Calling on the God of angel armies for protection, that's what you do. Matthew 25, 53, I can call down a whole legion. I don't have to go through this. I'm doing it. That's what Jesus said. In verse 6, Paul makes sure the Corinthians and all believers do not misunderstand what he said in verse 5b. Periodic celibacy for the sake of prayer and other spiritual disciplines, he says, is a concession, not a command. I think people make the mistake of tying verse 6 with verse 7. It really should be tied to 5 and the verses preceding. 
He is saying that, you know, if you make the decision or if you want to set aside time um, for celibacy within the context of your marriage for maybe focused prayer or some other spiritual discipline, go ahead. But I'm not commanding that you do that. It's just a concession I'm willing to make for you. That's what he's saying. So even here, there's some hesitancy on him pushing anything like this. I think in Paul, Paul was a single guy, probably a virgin, but I, and he has this incredible wisdom about these things, and that's obviously coming not from experience, but the Holy Spirit, but he understands the dynamic. But I think in the end, he is saying, I really, under no circumstances, think that celibacy within the context of marriage, deliberate, voluntary, is a good idea. But as a concession, if you want to stop being sexually active for a few days to prayer i think to pray i think it's okay but don't don't go any longer because of the dangers it's a concession he's making a compromise i think that paul i think that he had to make this distinction here the difference between concession and command it was very important for him to do this at this juncture because it is very likely that the main culprits in this church would have interpreted 5D as a command and then justified their protracted long-term celibacy, continuing to deprive their spouses of their conjugal rights for a really long time, putting their marriages and their spouses at massive risk. They, they might have even carried out protracted celibacy for the rest of their marriage. See, what Paul is saying in, in here is that I'm not commanding that you be celibate no, I don't think that's a good idea, but as a concession, you can do it periodically. He has to make the distinction for the Corinthians because they are the masters of adventures and missing the point. If you give them an inch, they take the distance from California to New York. Look, think of them using that as an excuse right there. Paul said right here, we should not be coming together because of prayer, so I'm sorry, honey, we need to take next six months off. It's a concession not a command. They would abuse this, and others would do it too, even today. Let's move to the fourth and final point. We are just about finished here. We really are finished. Number four, this one gets the least amount of time, and I'm sorry for you singles and celibate people. It probably should get more time, but uh, maybe another time we'll give it more time. Celibacy is a gift. Verse seven, he says, I wish that all were as I am, but each has his own gift from God. Uh, one of one kind and one of another. Although celibacy is good for single Christians, right? Verse 1, we've seen why. They're preserving the temple and, you know, keeping their, their, their union with Christ holy. It is, as Paul says here, a gift from God. But I'll tell you what, it is a gift from God, but it's not a gift that God gives every believer. He gives it to every believer for a period of time until they get married, but it's not you know, that, like, like, that is something that he calls all single believers to be a celibate. So it is given to them in that moment, but it, it's not necessarily a spiritual gift, which is what Paul is talking about here. That would be a temporary gift. And Paul is saying, essentially, that for those who are gifted with the gift of celibacy, it really is an amazing blessing. Paul knew this from experience. He even brags about it here. He wishes others were like him so they could experience the same unique joys that come with the gift of celibacy because there are amazing joyful great awesome gifts that come with it just as there are with marriage obviously singleness has many practical advantages 
It allows much greater freedom in where and how a person serves the Lord. As Paul points out down in verses 32 to 34, married persons have many cares and concerns that unmarried persons do not have. You're a married person and you decide you want to go on a mission to Uganda, you, you can't just drop what you're doing and do that, but as a single person you can. You better raise some support though before you try to get over there. But you, you, you know, everything that you do in, in marriage, is, it has to be mutually agreed on. Everything. What you're going to do and how you're going to serve the Lord and where you're going to invest your time in these things. I remember years ago, an old boss of mine, and this is dumb, but, you know, he came home with a, with a ski boat. He said, honey, look what I bought. <laughs> yeah, that's dumb. Did, didn't, even, didn't even connect with her over a $60,000 ski boat that he used once a year. That's dumb. We don't do that in marriage. What you do, you have to talk about and you have to discuss and there shouldn't be any surprises. And, and you can't just run off to Uganda and, and, you know, the Lord's calling me there, honey. There have been a great many marriages destroyed because of ministry. And it's because of the abuse of ministry. I know someone who ruined his marriage because he spent all his time at the church. It's like, your first ministry is your marriage. Why did you sacrifice your marriage over being at the church all the time? What are you doing? And it was too late. So there is a wonderful freedom that comes with singleness, right? When you're married, you really got to work things out. I'll tell you what, last couple statements here. For those who do not have this spiritual gift, the gift of celibacy, for those who do not have it, Trying to practice celibacy brings moral and spiritual frustration. You kind of, you know, you, you know you have to be celibate because you're single, but there's the desire there and the passions are there and you, you burn with what Paul says is passion and, and even says here in the beginning of this text, you ought to look for a wife if that's who you are and you don't deal with temptation well, but it can bring frustration if you, you know, keep saying to yourself, I'm gifted with this and you want the opposite of it all the time. It would be Far better for this brother or sister, the one who thinks they have it and it just isn't working out and it's very frustrating and spiritually frustrating, it would be far better for this brother or sister to find a godly woman or man and get married after 10 years of intense premarital counseling with Bruce and Ann. It's the Filburn boot camp. Well, let's see, where do we start? Because people today, as I said earlier, Christians are just rushing into this stuff, and it's mostly because they're sexually charged. Man, they shouldn't be sexually charged. Restrict how much culture you let into your life. Get it out of there. Remove the things that cause these things. 